that would help cut back on some of the feedback that we get here. And the hope was then, or the way it would work, is everybody has to move to the front. And what I'm finding is that this is staying in the same place, and steadily every week you all are moving further and further back. Um, there's nobody on these first three rows, and we had people up there, even Abby, let's see, the first week we were here, and then last week we were on that row, and I came in and sat down at night, and I said, why are we all the way back here? And um, I guess that's what I get for showing up at 5.58 and having to upload my PowerPoint, so maybe that'll teach me. <laughs> at any rate, if I, I come in here next Sunday night and everybody's sitting at the very back, you're going to have to move up. So just keep that in mind. Tonight we're talking about elders, and God's plan for church organization is summarized succinctly in the salutation of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So first of all, saints or holy ones, that's a favorite term for Paul. That's one he uses frequently to apply to the church as a whole. We all fall under that umbrella. It applies to the congregation, not some special class of super Christians, the way that the term saint is often used these days. The deacons are special servants of the church. We're going to talk about them next week. But then we have the overseers, or your translation may say bishops. This is a group of people who are in charge of the congregation, as the term overseer suggests. And that's the focus of our study tonight. But wait a minute, our word is elders, not overseers. During the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas went and they established a number of churches all throughout Asia Minor, and we read in Acts chapter 14 that they're making their way back through all of those churches that they visited. They're strengthening, they're encouraging them, and it says as they're making their way back, Acts 14 verse 23, they appointed elders in each church. Uh, similarly, Paul writes to Titus, and he encourages him to appoint elders in every town where there's a church on the island of Crete, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. So God's ideal is for each congregation to have elders, elders in every church. Well, what then about this identification of elders with these overseers that we have mentioned in Philippians 1 verse 1? The New Testament actually uses three different terms to describe this role. Presbyteros, that's the word translated elder. We'll look at this in more detail in a moment. Episkopos, that's the word that's translated as bishop or overseer. And then poimen, that's the word that's translated as shepherd or pastor. And when we start to read the passages where these different terms are used, we find that they're actually brought into parallel with each other. So in 1 Timothy, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 1, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So notice we have all three of those terms used there. These are those same three Greek words. Peter says the work of an elder is to pastor or to shepherd the flock and to be overseers. Another example is from Acts chapter 20. And we won't read this entire chapter, but this is when Paul calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him at Miletus. He's giving them a, a final charge here. He's on his way to Jerusalem, knows he's facing arrest. But in Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. We could read through all this, but the verse I want to focus on then is verse number 28, where he charges those elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus. That's the way this group of men is described in verse number 17. He refers to them then as overseers, and he says that part of their job is to care for. That's the verbal form of that word shepherd. Poimen, that's the verbal form of it. Their job is to care for, to shepherd, to pastor the church. A final example where we see these brought in parallel is from Titus chapter 1, verse number 5. Uh, Paul writes and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He lists some qualifications then. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And he continues on from there. But the point is, though we don't have the term a shepherd or pastor used here, we have, again, elder and overseer used interchangeably. He uses them synonymously, one and then the other. In other words, you put all this together where these terms are used in parallel. The elders are the overseers are the shepherds. This is three different ways of referring to the same functionary, the same office. And this is more than just an exercise in semantics or making sure we get our terminology right and that we're referring to the right people with the right titles. This is important because when we start to dig into these words, all of these terms are instructive in understanding uh, the role, understanding the work, understanding the, the office that these men have in the local congregation. So let's talk briefly about these three terms, and we'll begin with elder or presbyteros, and I have the uh, definition from the dictionary will come up there on the slide. I'm not going to read through that, but you can have it for reference, and I'm going to talk about what this means. The term elder, presbyteros, has its background in the Old Testament. So elders in the church derive their title, derive that position, their function from Judaism. If you remember anything about uh, reading Israelite history, there were elders in Israel. So you could look back and see how Moses appoints some to help him deal with overseeing the children of Israel there in ancient times in Numbers chapter 11. We see the elders of Israel mentioned again, Deuteronomy chapter 21, and there are other places. 
We also have Jewish elders mentioned in the gospel accounts. This is one of the groups that made up the Sanhedrin, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, elders. The elders of the people were one of those groups in the Sanhedrin. But it's not only the Sanhedrin. We also see a local community elders in Jewish towns and villages in the New Testament. Luke chapter 7, verse 3, for instance, references some of those. Well, when we're talking about Jewish elders, elders in Jewish communities were men of wisdom, men of experience, as that term elder even suggests. They helped settle disputes. They helped interpret the law. They helped administer discipline in their communities. Uh, They also helped preserve the traditions of the community, and they served as examples. You looked to them for, for guidance. You lived like they lived. When we think of all that background, elders in the church continued to perform those same functions. They continued to be guiding examples. They continued to help lead, to settle disputes, uh, to help discipline the congregation, so on and so forth. And as that title implies, they're to be men of experience, of maturity, of wisdom, so that they can take on this role. The second term, shepherd, from the Greek poimen, This term, more than maybe any other, helps us to really understand what the primary role of an elder is. What's the work of a shepherd? It's to look after sheep. I mean, that seems obvious, but start to think about what a shepherd does in looking after the sheep. He has to protect them. He has to lead them to water. He has to lead them to grass so that they can eat and they can drink. Uh, He has to care for those who are injured. He has to go out and seek those sheep who are lost, who've wandered astray. I mean, we see Jesus using that imagery in the gospel accounts. And indeed, from ancient times, the idea of a shepherd was used not only among the Jews, but all across the ancient Near East as imagery for a leader. A good leader was compared to a shepherd. So, for example... If you were to flick back and read through Ezekiel chapter 34, the prophet there talks about the leaders of Israel as shepherds in a negative context. That is, he says, you're supposed to be shepherds watching the flock and just paraphrasing. You've been worried about fattening up yourself. You haven't been looking out for the sheep. You've only been looking out for you. In contrast, we know Jesus is described as the good shepherd, right? He describes himself that way, John chapter 10. Shepherds have to make sure that those who are under their care are being taught sound doctrine so that they'll grow into maturity. There's feeding the flock. Shepherds have to watch out for false doctrine and for false teachers who might infiltrate the flock. There's the protection that we think about with a shepherd. Shepherds must watch out for the ongoing effects of sin in the lives of God's people. There's the healing and there's the taking care of injuries. And we see these sorts of things mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, for example. The last term, overseer. Now, your translation may say bishop. That comes from the Greek word episkopos. Uh, That literally means just what it sounds like it means. Someone who looks over, someone who watches over. Uh, In the ancient world, in the Hellenistic world, this was used of 
foremen, supervisors, managers of all types. It wasn't a word that was only used or even primarily used in religious context. This is the word for the boss, the overseer. So state officials, construction foremen, you name it. We could go down the list and we find this word being used frequently in those contexts. So this one's pretty straightforward. It's someone who looks after someone who manages, someone who directs the affairs of a group. When we see these words being brought into parallel, we look at their meanings. We need to understand all three of these words to really get a comprehensive picture of what the role, the work of an elder is. Elders shouldn't see themselves primarily as managers of a congregation, at least not in the sense that we normally use that word manager, uh, like you're running a business and thinking about it only in terms of those raw numbers, the way that you might out in the world, because that minimizes some of those responsibilities that we've talked about that fall under the idea of elder or fall under the idea of shepherd. On the other hand, even recognizing that, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that elders don't have any real authority. This was a, a live dispute. I, I've got some back issues, several years worth actually, of uh, the firm foundation, for instance, in my office. And back in the 70s in the firm foundation, this was something that was discussed a lot. Do elders have real authority or is their authority only an example? Well, that word overseer suggests that they do have a real authority. And we have indications in the New Testament to that effect. Hebrews 13, verse 17, you're to obey those that have the rule over you because they watch for your souls and they have to give an account for that. We should also realize that having elders, having overseers, that doesn't mean that a congregation doesn't have any voice at all in its affairs. Now, the church is certainly not a democracy, but good leaders are always going to welcome input and consider input. And I know the elders of the church here are always willing to sit down and talk to you and to listen to you. They meet every Monday night, and I've heard them say many times that you're welcome to meet with them anytime you have some concern or some suggestion. But even if they take that input, they're still ultimately the ones who are in charge of making the decision that they think is best. A good example I can think of, this is a little before my time, but I've heard this story a lot. My great-grandfather was an elder in the church in Marshall, and they began their services at 10 o'clock. That was actually their Bible class, and then their worship service started uh, at 11. You know, that's the old scriptural time, unlike starting so early like we do here. But at any rate, they had a big group of golfers in the congregation. And they were the main ones that wanted them to move it back to 9 and 10 so they could get out and hit the course earlier on Sunday after services were over. So they pushed this and pushed this, and uh, the elders were resistant to it because they had a lot of uh, young families, people with children in the congregation who they felt wouldn't want to get there that early because it's a fuss. It's a hassle to try to get the kids there and get everybody there, and then they're cranky when you try to get them there at 9 in the morning. So finally, these golfers pushed it enough that uh, they went ahead and they, they took a vote. They put it out there, an anonymous vote on what time you want services to be. And not long after that, one of these ringleaders that was pushing for it went in to see the elders, and he said, well, what was the outcome of the vote? Well, a 
slight majority wanted to move things back to nine. And he said, well, that's great. When do we move services? We don't. <laughs> he said, why is that? I thought the majority wanted to move things. It would help if I didn't drop my Bible, wouldn't it? He said, I thought the majority wanted to move things. And he said, the majority doesn't run the church. The elders do. And what they found in that vote is that while a slight majority wanted to move things to nine, those young families, that demographic they were concerned about, almost unanimously wanted to keep it at 10. And so they kept it there out of insensitivity to them rather than moving it just to accommodate something that some other group wanted as a convenience. And that's the sort of thing that elders have to take into account, and we have to recognize that they have authority because they're trying to make those decisions that are best for the congregation as a whole. Now, elders aren't to abuse that authority. They're not to lord it over the church. Peter says that, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. There's this principle of servant leadership that is ingrained in the New Testament. And there are things that the whole church is responsible for doing and not just coming from the top down, but for all of us. And here we could get into a, another topic uh, altogether, or several of them. But the, the point I want to make here, understanding those terms, elder, shepherd, overseer, is critical to understanding what it means to fill this role. And when we understand those terms, you think of that as the job description, as it were. When we understand those terms, we can understand the qualifications that are laid out for these men better. We find two clearly marked lists of the qualifications for elders in the New Testament. One in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the other in Titus chapter 1. And we usually take these so seriously, rightfully so, that if we're going to teach about elders or if we're going to go through the process of selecting new elders, we normally start here and we talk not only about those responsibilities, but we talk about those qualifications. And of course, we could spend not only a whole sermon, but a whole sermon series talking about these qualifications. You've probably heard series of lessons like that before. With all that said, I think we need to avoid a couple of opposite tendencies that I've seen when it comes to how we approach these qualifications. Uh, one is to set the standards so high that essentially no one can meet them. We look through these lists of items and we say that no man could possibly live up to those or we see a, a stray fault here or there and so we don't appoint anyone to serve in the office. And of course that leads to jokes. <laughs> Uh, you've probably heard the old one about uh, how Paul never expected any man to actually meet these qualifications because any man who tells you that he rules his own household will lie to you about anything. And so there's no way that anyone could realistically meet them. On the other hand, the other tendency, the opposite end of the spectrum, is to just sort of throw these out and we'll just pick the best men available. Yeah, maybe they don't match up to them too well, but you know, they're, they're the best that we've got. And the problem is that both of those tendencies have the effect of setting aside these qualifications we see in the New Testament. They don't take this standard seriously. And so I think it's much more helpful for us to start with those job descriptions. What does it mean to be an elder? What does it mean to be a shepherd? What does it mean to be an overseer? And to see the qualifications in light of those job descriptions. 
when we think of it that way, these lists of qualities are descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, it's not just an arbitrary list of things. You need to be this, you know, like we have running for office. You have to be at least 25 years old to be in the House of Representatives, 30 to be in the Senate, so on and so forth. The point isn't to make an arbitrary list of qualifications. Rather, this is saying to you, the type of man you're looking for will look like this. It's trying to describe to you the characteristics that someone who's fit for this job is going to have. I think a good example of this is a husband of one wife. That's what we find if we were to read through uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 2. He must be the husband of one wife, Paul says. And I've seen and I've read a lot of bickering over the years about what exactly this means and how do we apply it in each individual case study. How do we treat someone who's divorced, scripturally divorced? How about someone who's been scripturally divorced and remarried? Or how about someone who's been widowed? He was only the husband of one wife, but now he doesn't have a wife anymore, at least not a living one. Or how about someone who is a bachelor. You might think that husband of one wife would preclude unmarried men to anybody's mind, but I have a book in my library by G.C. Brewer, who was the editor of the Gospel Advocate and is a fellow that uh, I respect immensely, but he took the position that this is only applying to those who are married, that if a man is otherwise qualified and he's a bachelor, then he's fit to be an elder. And I don't happen to agree with that position. But the point is we can get into all of these different side issues, and I think it helps us to think about them in terms of what are we trying to do here? What's the job description? Consider that if you look in Titus, the church is compared to the household of God in these contexts, the family of God. You consider, too, 1 Timothy chapter 3, for instance, the joke I made earlier, verse 5, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? You see, the home, in some sense, seems to be thought of as a training ground for leadership in the church. And I think it helps to keep that in mind when we interpret this qualification. Does a man need a wife and children who are believers? Yes. Does that mean we need to get lost in all the minutiae of these particular cases? For instance, is someone who's a widower, does he need to resign? I don't think so. Personally, if he was married for 30, 40, 50 years and raised up believing children, I don't see any reason why he should have to resign at that point if he met these qualifications because, again, they're not arbitrary. So when we look through these lists, what we see is that they have similar ideas even if they're not always expressed in the same way because this is about the concepts. Again, the point of these passages is to say this is the kind of man that you want who can fill these positions of elder, shepherd, overseer. And we can group the items in different categories. Uh, most of them have to do with habits, temperament, with character. Others relate to experience. He should be not a recent convert or not a novice. Uh, some relate to reputation. He should be well thought of by outsiders. Some relate to intellect or to his time he spends in study. He should be an apt teacher. And again, some relate to domestic relations, as we've mentioned, because that seems to be very important. But what I want to emphasize, without us getting lost in any of these tonight, because there's just not the time to get that far into this, what I want to emphasize is that these aren't arbitrary 
they relate to the work that an elder has to do. These qualifications are laid down because certain jobs have to be done. There's certain responsibilities that have to be met. So just to pick a, a few to illustrate the correlation here. Uh, the overseer, it says, must not be a recent convert. Well, that makes sense in terms of the idea of an elder, right? He must be someone of maturity, someone of experience. He must be a proven leader, someone who knows and who understands the faith. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Well, that makes sense, too, because if he's an overseer, he effectively is a representative of the church to those who are out in the world. He must manage his household well uh, because in that comparison that's made in both Titus and 1 Timothy of the church to the household of God, he does for the church what the father does for the household. And that's sort of a proving ground for whether or not he's capable of it. Uh, he must be hospitable. That was particularly important in ancient times because he might need to host the church in his home. It's not like they had church buildings in the first century. Or sometimes he might have to host traveling missionaries, evangelists in his home. We read about that repeatedly. Uh, he must make proper use of money, not a lover of money. 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, that's mentioned also in Titus 1, verse 7. This isn't just as a matter of reputation, though that's part of it, but also because he's presumably going to be in charge of some of that. And so he needs to prove that he can take care of it. Uh, he must be peaceful or not quarrelsome, 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. That's because he's to be a peacemaker in the church. He must be able to teach, it says, and that's because he has the responsibility for feeding the flock, as Paul puts it, as a shepherd. We could continue on in this vein, going through these lists of qualities, but I wanted to lay down the concept here. I think we have something to go on, something to chew on for our own future personal studies or when and if this congregation might be faced with the prospect of selecting elders again in the future. We have something here to go on, food for thought, what these qualifications mean. This is truly a serious responsibility. Uh, it's a good work. As the Apostle Paul says, if anyone desires the office of an overseer, he desires a good work. But it's something that should only be undertaken with the utmost uh, thought and care before someone takes it up. And let's also remember that while the elders have a responsibility to the church, all of the rest of us have a responsibility to the elders too. And so I want to encourage us as we close this evening that we all endeavor, whether we're a bishop or whether we're a saint, the way that Paul addresses us there in Philippians 1 verse 1, let's live up to our own vital part in our respective roles in the church. Now, maybe you're here this evening and there's something amiss in your life. Maybe in some way you've failed to live up to that role. Maybe you need to make changes in a public way. If that's the case, if we can help you in any way at all this evening, I encourage you, take your opportunity to come and make your need known now while we stand and sing.